Hello and welcome to Culture Exchange, a podcast at the intersection of the humanities and cultural diplomacy. I'm your host, Terry Harvey, Vice President of the Meridian Center for Cultural Diplomacy. This podcast series explores the impact of the arts and culture on diplomatic relations across the world through discussions with cultural diplomacy experts. Today on Culture Exchange, we are taking a look back at the cultural impact of the 1970s Treasures of Tutankhamun exhibition. What began as a clause in a diplomatic agreement between the United States and Egypt dedicated to cultural exchange turned into a blockbuster exhibition that took hold of the public imagination. Joining us today is Dr. Aidan Dodson, who studied at Durham, Liverpool, and Cambridge Universities, being awarded his PhD in 1995. His research looks particularly at the history of ancient Egypt with specific interests in burial and funerary practices, the architecture of tombs, the history of Egyptology, in the history of Egypt between 1500 BC and 600 BC. He has taught at the University of Bristol since 1996 and has been honorary full professor of Egyptology in the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology since August 2018. He was Simpson Professor of Egyptology at the American University in Cairo for the spring semester of 2013 and served as Chair of Trustees of the Egypt Exploration Society from 2011 to 2016. Elected a fellow of the Society of Antiquaries of London, the oldest archaeological body in the UK, in 2003. Professor Dodson is the author of some 26 books and 400 articles and reviews. His latest book, Tutankhamun, King of Egypt, His Life and Afterlife, is being published by the American University in Cairo Press in December 2022. Thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. Aidan Dotson. Uh, we look forward to this fascinating discussion about the history of the King Tut exhibition as it traveled the world, traveled to America, and really what the implications were for audiences who were able to absorb this amazing content. I thought first to dive into really the, the historical context. Obviously, the discoveries of Carter were monumental uh, in early 20th century, and I wonder if you could speak a little bit on the historical context of the treasures of Tutankhamun exhibition. And, and how these were developed, and really what the diplomatic goals of this endeavor were, uh, I guess, in your case, for the people of the United Kingdom. I think that the important point was that the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun in 1922 really was the first time that anybody had seen what a completely untouched Egyptian royal tomb was like. Prior to that, we knew about some of the stuff which was in these tombs because there was the broken remains after tombs had been robbed. But the discovery in 22 suddenly made one realise precisely what some of these bits were once of and also revealed objects which I don't think anybody could have imagined even existing. For example, a solid gold coffin isn't something that really anybody had guessed might once have existed. And this material went on display in Cairo back in the, from the 1920s to 30s, but then was really only accessible to people who were travelling to Egypt. And the big change comes in the 1960s when the idea of having this kind of material travel outside Egypt was first, first mooted. There was a small exhibit came to the States in the 1960s, only as a handful of objects. But then, as we move on towards the 1970s, the real blockbuster show starts getting developed and including things like the solid gold mask of the from the mummy and a much wider range of material. And that sort of thing, this goes to France, it goes to the Soviet Union, 
it goes to the United Kingdom and then ends up having a long tour of the USA. Yeah, pretty remarkable to think about how many players were involved in exporting these treasures. You know, I wonder if you could speak a little bit on the, the stakeholders from the you know, UK foreign ministry, the Egyptian government, obviously the host institutions, private donors and such. I wonder if you could speak, uh, if you could, just to the collaboration amongst these variety of institutions, individuals contributed to the ultimate success of its display. It was an interesting combination of politics, culture, and sort of things in between. Because at one level, and it depended to, to a degree between which, which institutions you're talking about, which countries as well. But part of it was a question about sort of between collaboration between academic organisations, i.e. the Egyptian antiquities authorities, the individual museums, so there's a scholarly aspect to it. And then there's also the diplomatic and more political thing about what some of these, what these loans say about the relationship between Egypt and the various receiving countries. And I think there are subtle differences between which particular institutions are involved and how far the state gets involved. In the UK, for example, the Royal Air Force ends up transporting some of the material across from Egypt. In other cases, it's all done on a much more commercial kind of basis. And then also, when you've got things going on tour around countries, you have some very interesting dynamics between the heads of various institutions. In France and the UK, the material simply went to one particular venue, and there was no real sort of question about who's in charge as far as it was concerned. You know, the head of Egyptian antiquities at the British Museum, head of Egyptian antiquities at the, at the Louvre and so on. But then when the American show, it's got multiple stops. There is, in it from the outset, there's a bit of a needle between Metropolitan Museum of Art and the National Gallery in Washington over who actually is in charge. I think they end up with some kind of compromise whereby Washington gets the first showing, but the Met organises it and is the last stop on the grounds that probably you'll, the last stop is the best place to be because all of a sudden these people say, hang on, we've not seen it yet, the only place we can go, and you end up with queues around multiple New York City blocks to get in. And then the production of, of souvenirs that I think until, I think still they're still selling some of the leftover souvenirs from the exhibition in the 70s in the Met today. Yeah, it's, it's really remarkable as I'm learning this subject, just how they were able to really use this as a commercial endeavor, right? It obviously stimulated tremendous economic growth in all of these host cities around the world. I wonder, leaving that aside, I wonder what sort of cultural impacts it made on the people of UK, the people of America? Did it make them want to travel more to Egypt? Did it open their eyes to a, a whole culture that they otherwise had no intention of learning about? I think that was it. It was suddenly that once again, Egypt was a big thing. And the whole concept of Egyptomania, popular interest, it's been something which has waxed and waned ever since ancient Egypt became a thing for the Western world, probably in the, in the 1820s, I suppose. The first block Buster exhibition was in 1821 in London, and there have been various ones, but then things waned. You know, you had various points where Egypt was the big thing, and then it all sort of rather sort of fizzled away. And so, really, probably when Tadankhamun's tomb was found in 1922, up until then, Egypt had a degree of popularity. It was a good tourist destination, but it wasn't one of those sort of wow things. And then Tadankhamun is found, and between there and the Second World War, there's a whole period of real public 
recognition, I think an important point, is that, people, that when you can find that when you look at what people, what scholars are writing for the general public, and it takes an awful lot for granted. It sort of takes it for granted that certain individuals, not just Tadanka Moon, but his probable mother, Nefertiti, and other people are all recognisable names. That all goes rather sort of flat subsequently. And during the 1950s and 60s, museums are even disposing of Egyptian objects for a song. And then I think it's these ex- the Tadanka Moon exhibitions which really sort of get in popular interest and recognition of ancient Egypt going once again. So, and I think that's never really gone away since. I think those blockbuster exhibitions around Europe and North America really have meant cemented ancient Egypt in people's minds. The fact it's on school and curricula, all those sort of things, I think ultimately come back to those exhibitions. And certainly people who were around at the time, you know, the remember the queues going around city blocks to get into the British Museum and, and the, the American venues. So I think from the point of view of the embedding of ancient Egypt in popular understanding, well, that's actually understanding, because some of the understanding is a bit is a bit flaky, but, <laughs> but it comes up a bit consciousness anyway. Yeah, certainly uh, making its way into popular culture. I was reading that Saturday Night Live sketch comedy actually addressed the tours in America. I wonder if, if we could switch gears momentarily and just really discuss how this story fits into the contemporary discussions happening in the humanity space about the ethics of excavating human mm. remains and displaying artifacts from burial sites i mean did it move the needle for that did it open up other challenges like what, what did it do in that context i'm not really sure it did we had a negative effect in that it reinforced the old trope of archaeology as searching for treasure mm. And I'm not sure we've ever quite got beyond that. And I think there are various people who are perhaps ought to know better, are still sort of trumpeting that side of things today. There's the idea we are searching for very specific things, specific sort of iconic lost artifacts and things, rather than actually what we are doing is simply looking for knowledge and trying to undo that. On the other hand, though, because governments are normally rather stingy when it comes to giving out money for archaeological research, you do need to tap private sources. And of course, the way you tap private sources is by sort of flogging the idea of you're looking for wonderful things and and, and so on. It's actually quite difficult sometimes as an archaeologist to walk the correct line between populist stuff which you need to get people to get their checkbooks out or in modern terms to put bank transfers across and also trying to sort of hang on what we actually are trying to do is we're not looking for things specifically we are seeing what turns up and what that can say for as a to reconstruct ancient history as far as the ethics of display is concerned the question of displaying human remains i think is a slightly separate one from displaying what is found in archaeology. One of the things which has very rarely been done in any of the, uh, in the context of any kind of Egyptian traveling displays is any is, hu- is human remains. Or if they have been on, on tour, they've normally been still fully wrapped and in their coffins and so on. So that's not so much of an issue. As far as sort of the, the sort of the implicit thing about the morality of even excavating, I think the trouble with that, whether saying the people who say, well, we should be digging anything up, it's the trouble is that the genie is out of the bottle. Archaeology has been going on for a very long time. 
And it's quite clear, for example, during the um, more, more most recent Egyptian revolution, where guarding of sites and so on was withdrawn and archaeologists stopped working, simply people, genuine tra tra real treasure hunters, start digging things up. So the, I think the, 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 that, that particular genie, the idea that we shouldn't be excavating these things, went back 200, 250 years ago when people started taking interest in monuments of the past. So what we simply have to do is make sure that when we do investigate these things, human remains are dealt with in an appropriate manner, with due respect, taking into account as far as one can do the beliefs of the people who were actually were actually digging up, that everything should be properly recorded so that is in virtual terms, any kind of deposit continues to exist, not with objects sort of spread to the wind, with the winds, things not properly published and, and those sort of things. Although sadly, it still is the case that things don't get published. People tend to leave, often they enjoy the, they enjoy the excavation and the short-term stuff, and they tend to leave things to be written up when they retire. And of course, when they do retire, they may go under a bus Shortly afterwards, and says a lot of a lot of these uh, excavations, which have never actually been properly published, including to Dunkamoon, that Howard Carter fell ill not long after finishing the work, and you know, although he left some superb records, which are perfectly publishable, he never actually got down to it. And he's just one of a, an example of many examples like that. Yeah, the, the genie truly is out of the bottle, and obviously, with anything, you're going to have good players and bad players, right? You just hope that the good ones outweigh the bad. It also underscored, you know, this this monumental tour underscored just how one can monetize such a scholarship, right? And so that really uh, opened the doors, and obviously, uh, American Hollywood romanticizing this through film and mm. and, and such. So it's been an interesting landscape to learn more about. I wonder if we could uh, end with a, a final question, just in terms of, you know, what we learned from these massive exhibitions traveling through Europe and America. These were just really big early examples of soft power diplomacy, whether in museums or elsewhere. What have we learned from those blockbuster exhibitions uh, that traveled and sort of how can we improve on that and, and maybe, you know, get rid of some of the bad players? Uh, that is a loaded question, sir. Apologies, but I wonder if you yeah. can speak, uh, speak I, to that. I think, I think the key thing is is that, that when you're talking about international exhibitions like this, politics with a capital P are a major thing. And certainly the Tutankhamun tours and the very fact and the locations were part of sort of late cold of Cold War um, events. The very fact that at the time when the material was being shown in the Soviet Union and then the USA coincided very closely with when Egypt moved from being not in the Soviet bloc per se, but sort of sympathetic to that side to being more on the Western side when Anwar Sadat threw his Russian advisors out. And so that coincides very closely with all of this. So that certainly is part of it. And of course, without a political buy-in, insurance and all those sorts of and permissions and so on for things to, to leave countries are really, really quite important. So the ability to actually secure a slot on the tour or a specific loan was an important sort of uh, marker of how Egypto-French, Egypto-Soviet, Egypto-British and certain Egypto-American uh, relationships are going. That continues today, you know, with, with things which have been on loan from Russia or Ukraine in light of the current events in that part of the world. So it's always part of it. And then there's also, from the point of view, uh, there's that 
that level of politics. There's also just the very fact that people who are visiting these these shows, one would like to think that encourages them to be more au fait with other countries. Although sadly, that probably generally isn't the case because the perception of Egypt in the past, the gold, Tutankhamun, gods, and all those sort of things is very different from a lot of people's perceptions of the Middle East today, which are often completely misguided. So one would like to think that these things provide people with a desire to learn more about Egypt as a whole. But sadly, I think they tend to carry on very much living in the past. But on the other hand, though, there are people who I've met more than once in Egypt who were energised to come to the country for the first time by visiting one of the exhibitions in the 70s, and have since been become complete Egyptophiles, travelling on a regular you know, regular basis. So for some, it has had that kind of positive effect. But for some, it is just simply, you know, the latest, the latest glitzy thing. And I have a horrible suspicion that if you ask quite a few people in those lines to go in, where is Egypt? Can you point to it on the map? I fear most would have not a clue, which really worries me about when I talk to students, is their lack of geography. And, that, and these are people who are studying anthropology at uh, my, my university. And then your, your, man, your man or woman in the, on the street of New York, where's you know, Egypt? Well, it's sort of somewhere, somewhere, to the, somewhere across the Atlantic, perhaps. And right. Some people might even put it in the Pacific. I have no... That's the only problem. I think it's, it, it, it brings out one aspect of society. And also it's true for sort of tribes of Treasure of China and any of these other ones. But there is that, there is this little slight worry that they don't necessarily go as far as they like. And it would be nice if, if one could say that that increased appreciation of the real modern Egypt, but probably not. Yeah, I mean, some would obviously argue that, and obviously folks on our side of the Atlantic struggle with geography. You know, perhaps this exhibition sort of laid the foundation for curiosity. At least that's what I, I think. I, I think that's it. it. At least at least it sort of opened people's eyes that there is stuff there. Probably only a tiny minority who actually took it further, but the very fact those that tiny minority probably would never have engaged with the Middle East, past or present, if they hadn't gone to that. So there is that. There is that side of things, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dodson, for helping us uh, understand this important element of our history from a geopolitical perspective, from our archaeological perspective. I want to thank you for your time today. Thanks very much. Dr. Fatma Ismail is currently the U.S. Director for Outreach and Programs at the American Research Center in Egypt. She received her Ph.D. from the Near Eastern Department of Johns Hopkins University and finished her undergraduate studies and a preliminary master's degree in Egyptology at Helwan University, Cairo, Egypt. Dr. Ismail has worked on several exhibitions, including the Eternal Egypt Exhibition, Treasures from the British Museum at the Walters Art Museum, and Quest for Immortality, Treasures of Ancient Egypt at the National Gallery of Art, Washington, D.C. She also served as the main curator for the exhibition For Now and Forever, Funerary Artifacts from Ancient Egypt in the Cole Gallery of Washington College. Since 2010, Dr. Ismail has been teaching at several colleges, such as Micah, Montgomery College, Washington College, and McDaniel College. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Ishmael. 
Thank you for having me. So I want to dive right in to the amazingly historic uh, exhibition that traveled to the United States, uh, Treasures of Tutankhamun in the late 70s. I wonder if you could share a little bit with the audience, what about this blockbuster exhibition captivated an American audience? And what were some of the cultural impacts of its popularity in the U.S. and in Egypt? Of course, Tutankhamun's fame is mainly the result of his well-known preserved tomb and the global expressions of his artifacts. The tomb is only one of two royal tombs that were found intact from ancient Egypt. The first exhibition you reference on King Tutankhamun that took place in the 70s contained many of the major items from his tomb, such as the famous mask, the golden coffin, many statues and jewelry, all breathtaking, intricate works of art on their own artistic merit, let alone their unparalleled historical significance. And I really believe every item of the exhibition had a story and had touched the, the minds and hearts of the American and Egyptian audiences alike. Even though as a king, he was not of great importance, uh, every aspect of his private life, his lineage, family, his health, mummy, circumstances about his premature death, rumors about the curse. Even his religion is tantalizing and became the subject of many studies. It keeps adding incredible educational value to the study of history, archaeology, arts, diplomacy, and culture. In Egypt, in particular, it led to an increased interest in archaeology, funding of excavations and research, it attracted attention to the broader field of Egyptology, and I think most importantly, it connected the Egyptians themselves more with their history. Fortunately, the timing of the discovery of the tomb coincided with the rising of nationalism, and the Egyptian government of the prime minister at the time, Saad Zaghloul, insisted that all contents of the tomb stays in Egypt, inside the Cairo Museum. For the first time, Egyptians kept their rightful treasures together and cherished the story of the boy king forever. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, the exhibition tour gave Americans a real glimpse into the history and culture of Egypt, thus sparking perhaps economic growth through tourism and interest and curiosity. And I mean, it really was uh, a fanfare, uh, a truly a blockbuster exhibition. Absolutely. It's a defining moment for many people. I meet a lot of people who were became very enthusiastic about Egyptian culture because either they visited the exhibition when they were little kids or their parents visited the exhibition and told them stories of what they've seen in this amazing uh, exhibition in the 70s. Yeah, and for curators alike, and we, we curate exhibitions like you, and we're always looking for ways to improve on our work and, and learn from past examples. I wonder what, what can contemporary cultural exchanges, whether in museums or elsewhere, learn from this uh, amazing historical triumph tour through America? I think the most important lesson we can learn is its emphasis on the grandeur of the human experience and what humans, no matter from where or what time they live, can achieve. Also, what we can learn from each other, the overwhelming sense of adventure and excitement you feel when you learn about the story of the discovery of the tomb resonates, I think, with people's inherent sense of exploration and motivates them to seek more knowledge and uh, pushes them out of their comfort zone a little bit. It can also deepen understanding across cultures and creates ties between the U.S. and other communities. It helps everyone, especially students, develop 
a sense of appreciation for all the things that makes us different and diverse. Such international arts exchange certainly increases respect and admiration for other people, especially for their ability to create beautiful things that have endured for thousands of years. Yeah, it also, in a lot of ways, created the foundation for folks to really consider uh, Egyptology and the history of, of Egypt and, and Tutankhamun as part of their own global history, right? As curators, we're often trying to tell stories and make people feel included and involved. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm yeah. sure it did a tremendous deed. And, you know, really giving Americans a, a great sense of, of our human history, right? Absolutely. And it is a human heritage in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the great work you're doing at the American Research Center, I would be foolish to try to explain all of the great work you're doing. So uh -huh. I want to give you an opportunity to give our audience a little bit more about what you're up to and uh, how they can get more involved. Our RC, American Research Center in Egypt, is a private, premier, nonprofit American organization focused on the preservation and research of Egyptian cultural heritage. We have completed 95 conservation projects in the past 25 years, awarded $7 million in fellowship uh, grant money loan. We are affiliated with over 30 museums and universities around the world who rely on our resources to secure appropriate permissions for their fieldwork in Egypt. Most importantly, we are a world leader in partnership with Egypt for about 74 years, focusing on uplifting and highlighting the cultural priorities of the governments and working in partnership with the different Egyptian ministries. Uh, we host the most important conference of Egyptologists each year in North America and a thematic conference in Egypt also once a year. We are a membership organization with over 2,000 members globally. You can learn about us more uh, on our website, arce.org. Recently, we have increased our outreach programs to build on our mission of fostering a broader knowledge about Egypt among the general public with monthly virtual lectures, podcast program, chapter in-person lectures all over the U.S. And all this year, we're dedicated to King Tutankhamun. RC is also working closely with Google Arts and Culture, as well as National Geographic to spread the word about Egyptian cultural heritage. And I think the most exciting thing happening soon is the Tutankhamun Centennial Conference, Transcending Eternity that we are organizing in partnership with the Egyptian Ministry of Antiquities and Tourism. It's a three-day conference in Luxor, taking place between the 4th to the 6th of November, and it's actually happening on the same day, uh, November 4th, when the tomb was discovered 100 years ago. The conference will include lectures by world-renowned experts on Tutankhamun. Well, thank you so much. And on the eve of such a big conference, I uh, appreciate you making the time to help our audience gain a better appreciation and understanding of this historical uh, exhibition tour and the discovery. And, you know, doubtless, uh, so much scholarship has emerged uh, since then. It's countless, really. And it's unsung heroes like you and your organization that has, has really contributed to that from an academic standpoint. So thank you. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us today on Culture Exchange, a podcast that examines the impact of cultural diplomacy in its many forms on global relations. We'd like to thank the National Endowment for the Humanities for funding this podcast, our guests on this episode for taking the time to share their expertise, our podcast editor, Ed Bishop, and our listeners for taking the time to engage in the world of cultural diplomacy.